From the studios of WORQ in Wisconsin, this is the Stand Up For The Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up For The Truth. Brand new podcast today, Friday, November 10, 2023 on the calendar. Crash Connell pushing the buttons. Mary Danielson at the host mic. Good morning. Good morning. I am looking forward very much to our guest today, James Spencer. And we're going to talk about, he is from the Moody uh, Center, the D.L. Moody Center. And um, he has written some very thoughtful articles on politics and the church, politics in the church. Uh, they're kind of the same thing, not necessarily and I love to talk about this, um, especially because it just seems like there are just different camps, different thoughts on what that should look like or could look like. Um, and I think sometimes people think, well, that's a sacred cow. We don't really want to talk about that because it's a matter of conscience or whatever. But we are going to talk about it. And I'm very interested in what people think uh, about this, the issue. We're not going to resolve it today, of course. It's, it's unresolvable in a way. And yet, I think we're going to bring some very uh, interesting thoughts to it, and I hope that uh, you get something out of it and that you're edified. But first, we're going to talk uh, a Bible verse. We're going to do our scripture this morning. We're going to pray, introduce James, and then we're just going to hit the ground running. So my, my verse today is Philippians 3, 8 to 11. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Wonderful verses. We're going to pray this morning. So please uh, pray with me. Lord, we long for the day when we are in your presence for all eternity. Lord, sometimes we lose sight of the goal, but we ask, uh, along with the psalmist, that you would teach us to number our days uh, so as to live wisely with whatever time that we have left. Lord, help us to surrender our lives afresh and anew, and every day, not just today, Lord, but every day, and walk and talk in a manner pleasing to you. We lift up our guest, James, today and ask for clear direction, wisdom, and refreshment in his walk with you. We pray for much fruit for your kingdom, for protection and good health for him and his loved ones. For all needs to be met by your abundant grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Theologian and author James Spencer currently serves as president of D.L. Moody Center, an independent nonprofit organization inspired by the life and ministry of Dwight Moody and dedicated to proclaiming the gospel and challenging God's people to follow Jesus. He also leads the Shine Bright Project, which seeks to mobilize God's people to be and make disciples, and I'll ask him about that shortly. Uh, he is author of uh, a book here that I have come to love, Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. Also, Thinking Christian, Essays on Testimony, Accountability, and the Christian Mind. He contributed to the Moody Bible Commentary, the Moody Encyclopedia of Messianic Prophecy, and Marriage, Its Foundation, Theology, and Mission in a Changing World, MoodyCenter.org. James, welcome to Stand Up for the Truth. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. 
Um, we want to spend a few minutes talking about the D.L. Moody Center. Um, tell us a little bit how that came to be uh, in your life. How did that come about for you? Well, uh, I was actually working as an academic dean at Moody Bible Institute and uh, had the opportunity to meet with some folks from the D.L. Moody Center, which is actually a separate organization um, located in Northfield, Massachusetts. Okay. Northfield, Massachusetts is actually where D.L. Moody was born. And it's ultimately where he lived most of his life. Uh, he moved back to Northfield after the Chicago fire and, uh, and started several different ministries out there. And so as I got connected with them, I was also just looking to uh, make a shift uh, in my career. Uh, I was a little burnout being in higher education for 11 years mm. and was looking for something different to do and uh, got to talking with the folks at the D.L. Moody Center and felt like it could be a good fit. So in 2018, I started working with the D.L. Moody Center and um, really had the opportunity to kind of uh, enjoy uh, getting to know D.L. Moody uh, mm. through that experience. Uh, working at MBI, I hadn't really done a lot of research in Dwight Moody's life, but uh, part of what we do at the D.L. Moody Center is we have a digital archive project where we are digitizing all of D.L. Moody's letters and papers and uh, the letters and papers about D.L. Moody. And so I just sat down and started reading through his different correspondences and um, really enjoyed getting to know this uh, strong man of faith. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And I went in there this morning and read a couple of letters, and I really I really enjoy that. I mean, I love history anyway, but it was just, you get to see someone's heart. Um, yeah. I, I, I learned some fascinating things also mm-hmm. from the website about him, that he was one of the most significant Christian figures in American history, and... James, God is still using D.L. Moody because here we are. So, you know, that just blesses me. But uh, some of these uh, little, I guess you could call them factoids, he ministered to military personnel during the American Civil War. He became mm-hmm. a close friend of Ulysses S. Grant, general. He worked tirelessly with Southern prisoners of war. He's a founder of the modern Christian publishing industry. Uh, he was deeply influential in the religious history of Great Britain. He championed education for women and disadvantaged children. He preached the gospel to more than 100 million people in his lifetime. And also Billy Graham's ministry model, the crusade-style ministry, is a direct copy of his ministry model. But I want to back up there to 100 million people in his lifetime. Uh, that's a lot of people. And he was um, he was one of how many how many children? Uh, nine, nine? Uh, yeah. I believe, at the yeah. end of it. Um, his father died, and his uh, mother was pregnant with twins. Oh and goodness. so um, when his father died, when Moody was about four years old, um, he quickly had to take some responsibility for helping the family out. Mm. So Dion Moody, it's fascinating to read about him. He, he didn't have more than a fifth-grade education, mm. any formal fifth-grade education. He always had trouble reading and writing, spelling, those kind of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, the reach that he had at the time that he had that reach, I mean, there were no, there was no broadcasting, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know, newspapers were pretty mm-hmm. big. Um, and he really, uh, pioneered the open air sort of crusades, um, you know, that Billy Graham ultimately continued, but yeah, his reach was pretty fantastic. And that hundred million, depending on who you read, uh, some people will say that's a conservative estimate. Oh, wow. And so, um, it was just a really, uh, he was just a very active tireless worker for Jesus, mm. and uh, and ultimately his earnestness uh, wasn't really his preaching style, it wasn't really his delivery, he didn't have any, you know, sort of slickness about him necessarily. Mm-hmm. He was just all sold out, and I think that was really compelling to people. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. What what is the Shine Bright? <clears throat> excuse me, I tickle the Shine Bright project. Yeah, so we uh, at, at Deal Moody Center we started this uh, campaign called Go Dark Shine Bright, and um, we started it um, right toward the end of, or right at the beginning of COVID, actually. I think, and what we were seeing was we were really trying to solve how do we get God's people to pray more. And what we landed on was this idea that, well, God's people are, aren't praying because prayer is getting squeezed out by social media scrolling, internet surfing, um, you know, shopping on Amazon, all these different sort of distractions that right. keep people and occupy their time other than prayer. And so what we did was we uh, created a challenge called Go Dark, Shine Bright, and it was a 10-day social media fast where people would just put down their, their social media for a full 10 days and replace that activity with Bible reading and prayer. And so we've had uh, almost 80,000 people go through that program since wow. it started, um, and just really having a lot of people off social media for that many hours is, mm-hmm. I think, pretty outstanding. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we do. We really try to encourage God's people to set aside things that will hinder their spiritual growth and replace those hindrances with things that are going to help their mm-hmm. spiritual growth. Yeah, very proactive. I like it. I like it a lot. Now, what happens at the D.L. Moody Center? It's not a, a school. No, it's no. not a school. Um, we actually own the historic property where D.L. Moody was born, okay. where he lived after the Chicago fire, and then uh, actually a 2,300-seat auditorium that he built to hold summer conferences in Northfield, Massachusetts. And so a big part of our ministry is preserving that property. We also do the D.L. Moody archives, which is, again, part of that preservation. Mm-hmm. But the way I think of what we really do is we are trying to invite people to consider the life and faith of D.L. Moody. Mm -hmm. And we believe that when they do that, they're going to see Jesus through his life. They're going to get a clear gospel presentation um, just by looking at what this man accomplished. And I think better put, uh, what God accomplished through this man. And so that's the real heart of our mission is to um, point people to Jesus through the life and faith of D.L. Moody. Yeah. And, and at a simpler time when it was probably a lot easier um, than it is now. We have so many distractions. I want to get to the politics in just a second here. Um, sure. We were talking before the podcast a little bit about how I got my interest peaked in D.L. Moody. It's kind of a backwards way, but um, some of our listeners may be aware of a gentleman named Horatio Spafford who wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, or Peace Like a River. Some books call it Peace Like a River. And he was a good friend of D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody was over in London. Uh, he had such a great effect on on the church in Britain. But um, Horatio Spafford was in Chicago helping people who were victims of the Chicago Fire. This would have been in the 1870s. And he was going to join his friend D.L. Moody over in England, but he couldn't quite get away at that time, so he sent his wife and daughters on a ship uh, over there. But the ship was lost, and so he lost. He, his wife uh, survived, but his, his daughters were lost. And to write a hymn like that, so when he finally sailed over there and the captain of the of the ship pointed, this is where they went down, uh, he went to London and wrote, It Is Well With My Soul. So what a rich, rich history. And I just got a glimpse personally of who he was, um, who Moody was in that context of that time frame. Uh, so that that's my own little story about that. But I do want to get to politics and the church. And you have had some really complete thoughts on this, James, and I so appreciate it. Uh, in fact, in the book, uh, Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody, this really hit me between the eyes. Um, like I said, I think this is worth a discussion because at least in my lifetime, it seems like Christians seem to be looking to identify 
with the political arena to define themselves morally, and even more than that, to look to politics to fix the broken parts of life and culture. Now, you state in your book, Useful to God, um, so well how Christians should approach the broken world. So bear with me a minute. I just want to read a paragraph, and this really sets the tone for me. You say, um, and this is Moody's work in our world, today we live in a world that is not as it is supposed to be. We see war, sickness, poverty, political unrest, slavery, and prejudice, both at home and abroad. Our world is chaotic, it is broken, and we are broken as well. And then you go on to say, God's people are not immune to the difficulties of a fallen world. The church experiences sickness, feels the pain of war, struggles to honor God in times of want and in times of plenty, and wrestles to be impartial. Yet we do not simply seek to survive this world until Christ returns to make all things new. Like D.L. Moody, we are to proclaim God to the world in word and deed because as Christians we are not responsible for fixing the world. We are responsible for living faithfully in a world so broken only God can fix it. As we fulfill that responsibility, we trust God to work through us rather than for us, even though we may not always understand just what God is doing. James, that is very, very loaded. And I, I think that we often do try to seek to fix the broken parts through political means. How, has, how have things changed, do you feel, uh, in the church and in our lives with the advent of 24-7 news and social media and all that? And how is this affecting the church? You know, I think that overall what I see in the proliferation of information that's out there right now is that we have many more opportunities to cultivate fear. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a study Mm -hmm. done by Campbell University, and they look at American fears. And one of the things that they found was that people who watch the news on a daily basis are two to three times more likely to be afraid Mm -hmm. of the sort of news stories that are reported. So, in other mm-hmm. words, if you watch a conservative news station, you're going to be three times more likely than someone who doesn't watch that news on a daily basis to be afraid mm-hmm. of conservative fears. Mm-hmm. Things like maybe immigration or the collapse of the economy or, um, you know, wokeism and those kind of things. And the same thing happens if you're watching liberal news mm-hmm. every day. Interestingly, there's no correlation between uh increased fear and reading the news. Hmm. And so what we're finding is, I think, two things. Number one, the frequency with which we're presented with information, and we could talk about the substance of that information, right? Mm -hmm. Because 24-hour news stations don't often present you with new information over time. (laughs) They tend to just continue repeating and reinforcing and offering opinion on one little piece of information they've already given you. Hmm. And then, uh, so I think the frequency is a problem, but I also think a medium, the medium is actually a problem. The way we approach TV is different than the way we have to approach a newspaper. You Mm. know, and I I think of it like this, like I can watch a TV show and and do something else, right? It's on in the background. I'm not really engaging with it. It's just sort of background noise. But if I'm trying to read, I actually need to concentrate on what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. I have to be thinking about it and engaged. So TV is, in that way, a much more passive medium. And I think those kind of elements are what we're dealing with as a church. As we're getting that news, as we're you know, having a steady stream of, the way I like to put it, of stories that tend to distort and deny God coming into our brains, mm-hmm. 
Um, everything they talk about the news is generally talked about from a human perspective. There's no real theological slant yeah. on any of that. And so it starts to feel like humans need to do something about those human problems right. that are very much apart from faith, apart from God, apart from any solution that we might look to as Christians who believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Hmm. Hmm. And also the visuals. I mean, of course, they are working on those sure. visuals around the clock to make sure that, you know, you get the most bang for the buck. But you can't get these right. images out of your head either. I, I think of right. the uh, the Israeli thing that's going on right now. And then the images, some people are saying they wish they hadn't watched some of that because yeah. you can't get that out yeah. of your head. Of course, it should drive us to our knees. But and when, I, when I was a young believer, James, politics did not hold an audience uh, with Americans 24-7. We knew who the president was. He wasn't on the news all the time. Um, and yet it's like this has created some kind of a monster where this is what people think about all the time. Um, and the younger generation now, they think that that's normal to be thinking about politics all the time. But you have an, uh, an article here about, it's called Politics Secularization Driving Increase of Nuns, not, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, and Why Christians Need to Be Concerned. And I'm going to ask you here to explain what is a nun, N-O-N-E? <laughs> Yeah, it's not my term. It's a term from uh, Ryan Burge's book. He actually authored a book called The Nuns, and he looks at this uh, phenomenon where people are disaffiliating with any particular religion, and, and specifically Christianity. Hmm. So they do the big, one, big demographic surveys, and people are asked, what religion are you? There are more people, people are marking no, no religion or I'm spiritual, but I'm unaffiliated with any religious, this, you know, sort of uh, established religious organization. Mm -hmm. That is what is generally referred to as a nun. A nun. And so um, there's been a growing group of people who are disaffiliating from any religious establishment, and particularly from church, Christian churches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, what about when you were younger? Did you, because you say in the article, you says, I was an incognito I, nun for much of my I, life. <laughs> I was. I mean, the way I think about it is, you know, it was convenient to be Christian. Um, mm -hmm. It was sort of the, at that point, uh, I grew up in the, you know, I was born in 1977. You know, so I would have grown up largely through high school. I graduated in 1996. And during that time, uh, there weren't a whole lot of other options, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I remember having one Mormon kid in my town. I don't recall having any real, like, a big Jewish presence in my town, you know, um, so the, the other world religions were not well represented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just sort of expected that you would go to church. And so by default, that default operating system was, yeah, you're Christian. And it didn't really matter if you'd heard the gospel or had been born again or anything like that. You were just Christian by default. Mm -hmm. And But I don't know that I would have ever said that I had a real commitment to it. In other words, um, as soon as it was convenient for me not to go to church, like when I went off to college, I didn't go to religious services. I was just done. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an important part of my life. It just happened to be more convenient uh, when I was a kid and growing up through high school to go to church yeah. than it was to skip going to church. Mm -hmm. So I was definitely a Christian out of convenience, and I think <laughs> it pushed. Uh, I probably would have said yeah, I don't really need to affiliate with any sort of religion. 
very interesting. And this article is so fascinating. The way the way you put this, it says uh, the influence of politics is strongly correlated with the rise of the nuns in the United States. And Ryan Burge, author of The Nuns, says a stunning reality is coming into sharper focus. Political concerns are driving religious behavior more than theological beliefs are guiding political principles. He goes on to suggest while none, while the nuns were slowly trending upward to this point in the early 1990s, their rise accelerated dramatically around 1995. It was uh, coincided with the moment of the rise of evangelicalism and the religious right. And then you say politics, along with the Internet and secularization, seems to be fueling the increase of the nuns. The research of the nuns should be concerning for those committed to building the body of Christ because it suggests that politics is beginning to shape the church. Uh, that's a little scary. And then so there's a survey, um, a recent study found that three out of ten Americans identify as a nun. Yeah. Um, and so what was it about, I guess you have to ask yourselves, what did they think church was for or what did they go to church for? Because clearly they were not getting what they expected. Well, you know, I think when we think about church, and this is, is sort of one of those things where um, Christians probably just need to be really specific about what we mean when we say church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, church is the formation of the body of Christ. It is all those who have actually given themselves over uh, to Christ in baptism and are being discipled to conform to his image. Church is not a building we go to on Sunday. Right. Amen. That's a local congregation. And so I think a lot of people go to a local congregation for a number of different reasons. You know, you can go for just the social aspect. You can go like I did as a kid because my family went yeah. and yeah. it would have been really, it would have raised a lot of tensions that just why bother, mm-hmm. you know, to say, I don't want to go to church anymore. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I think there are a whole host of social reasons that people go to a congregation or a church. But to really be part of the church requires belief and commitment. And so where, where I say I think that the real challenge here, the why we should be concerned, is that politics are beginning to shape the church. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that I think I'm seeing believers begin to allow their worlds to be shaped, their behaviors to be shaped, more by politics than by Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the crux of the issue that we really need to be diving down on. You know, what does it say about us as a people if we can't be, I mean, as, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, if we are so anxious, if we're anxious in the same way that the nations are anxious, what are we really portraying to the world? Mm-hmm. And politics often, I mean, there's a 2016, uh, 2017 LifeWay survey that came out, and 26% of people said that they voted for the political candidate that they voted for because of the economic issues. The moral issues, something like abortion, got 4%. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of sit back and you say, wow, we're, we're starting to vote for more pragmatic concerns. Hmm. We're seeing the political realm as a fix for the problems that we're facing. And if that's the case, how is it that participation in politics squares with seeking first the kingdom and and God's righteousness? It's not that I think that they're contradictory. It's just a question of, do we have these two things situated together in the correct way? Mm. And I'm not sure that we do at this point. Mm -hmm. It starts to feel a little bit like we're using politics to maybe pretend that we're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. But when in reality, many of us are using politics because we're anxious about what we're going to eat 
what we're going to wear and what we're going to, you know, how we're going to live. And we've decided that God is not sufficient to provide those things, but politics may very well be. Mm, Wow. Very, very well put. Um, You explain in this article that Barna found that of pastors who have considered quitting full-time ministry, and this is interesting, 38% identified current political divisions of pastors who have not considered quitting, 32% identified current political divisions as a factor that negatively impacted their ability to lead their church. Um, So political uh, political tensions within the church are affecting people's calling to be disciples. I mean, that that is very much out of balance. And we're not saying that you can't be politically aware if not engaged to some level. We're not telling people they cannot do that. But compromising our priorities, like you said, seeking first the kingdom and the Great Commission in priority, if we're causing division and the nuns, the nuns are being driven away from church, um, that that is not... A good thing at all because uh, you say we need to ask ourselves whether we have become disciples of a per- particular political tribe rather than disciples of Christ, and it easily, easily so easily be self deluded on these things. It's yeah, I think that there's a way for us to um, view the political system and the world that we live in as full of givens, right? Hmm. right? Hmm. Certain things that have to happen, and if they don't happen, life is just not going to work well. And, mm. and so we start to buy into uh, the idea that, well, if, uh, you know, if, if, some, if one person gets elected over another or if one policy gets through rather than another, if we don't get rid of, you know, um, some political issue, we can't solve some political issue, life will never be right. Yeah. And, and I think more what we read in Scripture is um, life is only going to be right when God recreates the new heavens and the new earth. Mm-hmm. So we should probably get used to life being wrong <laughs> in a number of different ways. Yeah. That does not imply, um, and I think James speaks to this, um, pure and undefiled religion in the eyes of the Father is visiting widows and orphans in their affliction and remaining unstained from the world. And I think that first part of it, visiting widows and orphans in their affliction, there is a way for us as Christians in America to be participating in politics in order to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Hmm. In other words, there's a way for us to participate in politics that can be in line with what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves, mm. you know, the God established political authorities to judge between the just and the unjust. Right. And in most of Christian history, Christians haven't really had a voice in that, um, in the sense that we determine our political leaders. But in a representative democracy, we do. And so there's a a part of it that I, I kind of sit back and I say, yeah, let's vote for the people who we believe will best be able to discern the just from the unjust. That's appropriate. But at the end of the day, um, if we believe that the United States political system is going to provide better opportunities than discipleship, I think we have just missed the boat. Discipleship opens up opportunities that we we would never experience through any sort of political party, any sort of political movement, uh, even through our own effort. Discipleship opens up opportunities from a God who is capable of doing more than we could ever ask or think. Yeah. yeah. And so we have to focus there and then allow some of these politics to emerge out of that discipleship. Mm-hmm. And, and I really think that um, it doesn't have to happen sequentially, yeah, right? right? Not calling for people to become hermits and right. isolate themselves so they can do <laughs> discipleship. Right. Right. 
But I do think that our continual discipleship, our continual learning to observe all Christ commanded, has to inform the way that we even participate in politics. Hmm. Because to your point, I mean, these stats are outstanding. I mean, the you know, 32% uh, of pastors citing current political divisions as negatively impacting their ability to lead their church. Yeah. Wow. That's not a good thing. No. No, it's definitely not a good thing. And I, you know, we, we've watched progressive theology infiltrate the denominational churches, social justice, Jim Wallace, people yeah. like that, who call themselves yeah. Christians, but their politics comes first. And it's a turnoff to me, very much so. And the progressive theology mm-hmm. churches, you're talking about the uh, LGBTQ, right? They're ta- they've taken on fixing a broken system, sure. which is the absolute off-ramp. They're not on the main highway anymore. They're on some off-ramp somewhere else. But now, how is it really that much different when there's so much politics in the conservative church as well. And I'm going to, I'm going to wait on that until we get back and ask you about that particular issue, whether we're different or not. So we're going to take a break here. Um, talking to James Spencer today of, of, uh, DL Moody Center, uh, moodycenter.org. And it's just a very interesting, um, look at politics and how it is in the conservative church and, um, for lack of a better label, I guess, there, and how it actually is changing uh, the complexion and the focus in the church, something that we do not want. So, uh, again, uh, James Spencer, MoodyCenter.org. We're going to take a a short break here. Stay with me for the second half of Stand Up For The Truth. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can see video versions of our podcast, Q90FM Radio, Q90FM Radio on YouTube. Our social media pages are shadow banned. Thanks for your prayers and sharing our posts at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. My name is Mary Danielson on a Friday, MoodyCenter.org. We're talking to James Spencer about politics in the church. And uh, when we left, we were talking a little bit about progressive theology and a lot of more of the liberal churches, social justice, um, gender affirmation, LGBTQ. Um, and we've seen that really... Um, infiltrate a lot of Christendom, and now even um, the conservative churches seem to be a lot more politically active, James, and I wanted to ask you, do you see it kind of, is is this apples and apples, or is it, um, are you concerned about that? Is it more of the same on the left, only a little different, or what do you think about that? Well, I think the, you know, the the main distinction here, uh, one distinction we have to make is in the actual position, the faithfulness of the position of the Bible. Okay. And so mm-hmm. there are a lot of issues that are precluded from Scripture that we just shouldn't hold as Christians. Um, issues on abortion, issues on transgenderism, LGBTQ, those kind of things. And and so if we think about just the straight position and the truth that it is claiming, um, you know, those are, are antithetical to Scripture, and we should reject those. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that happens on the on the progressive side or what we might call liberal. But I think we also have to look at the procedure or the process. And the procedure and process is very similar. What we seem to be buying into is this idea that uh, political participation is required for us to fix the world, for us to make the world yeah, right. Right. And so our participation the and the way we get to participate in the United States, I mean, we have this representative democracy where individual citizens can go out and participate in politics. 
And I think that lends itself to this idea that we should be active in that realm, which isn't a bad thing necessarily, Mm -hmm. until it starts to draw us away from being active in the realm that really should be primary for us, Mm -hmm. which is the church, which is the kingdom of God, which entails discipleship. And I think the real, for me, um, the real challenge becomes um, thinking about something like prayer or uh, Bible study or, like, say, discipleship, and you look at those not as solutions anymore, but as something that you just do in private time. And if you really want to impact the world, you have to go out and act in the world. You really have to go out and be involved in politics. Mm -hmm. And I think those are some of the subtle deceptions that are being pulled in um, through some of the more conservative politics mm-hmm. because it starts to feel like what we're shooting for is making America a better place to live. Yeah. And the way I usually refer to that is I, my concern is that we are settling for wholesomeness when only holiness will do. Mm, wow. Oh, that's a, that's a great, great thought. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to wade in a little farther into the deep end here and ask you something about, um, Pastors endorsing candidates around election times from the pulpit. Um, I've heard people say that a Christian really in today's liberal climate, okay, cannot be a liberal because of the amoral tide of abortion, gender confusion, alphabet soup, alternative lifestyles. Um, and I, I think some of them do it because they can or they're, they're endorsing someone and actually what they're trying to communicate is don't vote for that other person. Uh, so it's a sort of a mixed bag. But what what is your feeling about um, churches endorsing uh, officially? Because there are people out there sitting in that congregation who maybe they came to church to get away from politics because they hear that all the time. They want that set-apart time to hear about God, but they're getting more of it at the church, and they're being alienated because of an endorsement. So what do you think about that? Well, I think any time uh, that we make hard statements, that are not biblical, we do run the risk of alienating people in our midst. And, um, you know, that's just going to be a normal part of life. With regard to endorsing, you know, political candidates, specific political candidates, my understanding is that the Johnson Amendment actually precludes that. Hmm. And so I have trouble squaring. Um, If that's the case, the direct endorsement of political candidates by a 501c3 nonprofit, which most churches are, I have trouble squaring that with something like a Romans 13, which calls us to be subject to our governing authorities. This is something that, whether we like it or not, it is a legal policy within the United States that 501c3 organizations are simply not to endorse a specific political candidate. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that we can't educate congregants. It Mm -hmm. does not mean that we can't provide political information. Mm -hmm. But I I just really have trouble squaring why a pastor would, in my mind, just advertently, blatantly ignore a law Mm -hmm. in order to go about endorsing a candidate. Mm -hmm. And and so to me, it, it creates a contradiction um, we say that we are trying to fix America so that it looks more godly, while at the mm. same time subverting authority that God put in place. Mm. I just think there's better ways to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'd say. I think it's uh, it feels to me like just one of the worst possible ways we could educate people on how to discern who to vote for. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I understand that. And and to understand our identity, I mean, Paul says, to live is Christ. That is our identity. And I think a lot of times Americans like to add add on to that identity. Yes, but I'm this. Yes, but I'm that. No, but it says to live is Christ. To die is gain. That is our worldview. Right. And I th- if they, we make that our worldview, everything should flow from that. But if we skew yeah. that identity and that worldview, then then we do get off track. And I, I think the church has gotten off track in so many of these things. Do you think that, um, I know a lot of churches don't teach prophecy, and many churches are um, more of a dominion theology type of, if you throw that in the mix, you know, dominion theology kingdom now, sure. where where we have to clean up our culture and clean everything up, before Jesus can even come back, which you and I both know is is absurd, and yet it is out there, and they are not teaching Bible prophecy. Do you think that the lack of Bible prophecy also contributes to having a a, a, a different perspective of the world that we live in? You know, I think that when I look, and you know, I'm an Old Testament guy, so that's kind of what I this point my PhD is in is Old Testament studies, and um, you know, when I look back at some of the prophets, let's say Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah's job was to deliver unpopular messages. Um, you know, when, <laughs> uh, sure. when they come seeking Jeremiah and, and they say, Jeremiah, what are we going to do about the Babylonians? And Jeremiah just says, well, you're going to fall to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant, and he is going to, um, you know, God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar to punish Israel and to help them reap the consequences of their sin. That's not a popular message. Mm-mm. It's probably not even one that Jeremiah, like he wasn't looking at Babylon going, you know what, this person is really moral, and I love their policies, and I think they'd be great rulers. That's not what Jeremiah is doing. Wow. <laughs> and so I think there's a, a, a sense in which, because we've grown so unfamiliar with how the biblical prophets functioned, that we're consistently sort of going back to this narrative of, everything's okay, if we just get this next candidate in, it'll be all right. And we've sort of forgotten that um, Isaiah, <laughs> you know, um, tells uh, Ahaz not to lean on the broken reed of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's just these, I think, really great insights from the biblical prophets that are calling God's people back to God and dependence on him. Mm-hmm. They're not advocating for any particular political policy, any particular political candidate. Mm -hmm. There are no political messiahs. There's just Jesus. And so I think that's where we we lose it with some of the biblical prophecies. One of the ways we lose it by not being familiar with biblical prophecy. We miss this idea that God isn't always going to align with what we think he's going to do. Sometimes he's going to do something very different. Uh, than we would ever have considered. Yeah. You know, nobody, I think, yeah. would have guessed that God was going to use a Persian king, call that Persian king his anointed, yeah. and bring Israel out of exile from Babylon. Hmm. This is not what they were expecting. Right. That's what happened. Right. And so I, I think there's just a lot of uh, sense in which, as we engage in politics today, maybe we're not giving God the mysteriousness that he's due, and and really watching and waiting for him to be doing things in the world, we're we're sort of settling God, taming God, and drawing him in, and you know either putting a, a donkey or an elephant on him, and, and assuming <laughs> that he's going to uh, toe the line of our political party. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And in this article, you have Render to God What is God's Reflecting Christ in Politics from, this is about a year ago. Uh, one of the greatest dangers you say Christians face today is our tendency to make God look more like us when we ought to focus on looking more like him. While preparing to teach a course on secular ideologies, I came across an op-ed arguing that the religious rights response to the election of Joe Biden contributed to the events of January 6th. The lead image for the piece showed three people holding up a large banner that read, Trump is president. Christ is king. You say, as I considered the op-ed, I wondered how the piece might have presented God's people had the sign read, Biden is president. Christ is king. Um, you know, there's going to be, because of what we're talking about today, I, I do believe there's going to be uh, more and more uh, antagonism towards Christianity um, in all the forms, whether it's a patriotic form or whatever, and I think we need to be careful what hill we choose to die on, because if we're going to be persecuted, it better be for the gospel. It should yeah. never be for uh, our patriotism or who we vote for or anything like that. And I, I think that, at the end of the day, is one of the great dangers, um, you know, a rallying behind a political vision rather than a theological one. And you say, and I love this in this article, you say the politics of the world are not trivial, nor are they treated as such in Scripture. Government plays an important role in the administration of justice. So putting putting it in its place, administering justice has a place. Notably, the Old Testament portrays the various ways God uses the nations of the world. He granted victories to nations for reasons that were difficult for Israel to foresee or understand. Uh, and so you say, well, we're not calling Christians to abandon the political realm or, or set aside, you know, patriotic concerns. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but even more importantly, to God what is God's, Matthew twenty two, twenty one. So again, we're not here to fix that broken world, are we? No, and I, and I think you know, here's what I would really say is, um, you know, that that sign, uh, Trump is president, Christ is king, you know, that really hit me. Yeah. Um, because I don't think there are a lot of people who are holding up Biden as president, Christ is king. Yeah. But both are true. Mm-hmm. And Christ is always king. And so for us to get agitated over who's in the White House, um, for us to align with a political figure or ideology, seems to me that we are sort of second placing Christ is king, mm-hmm. when Christ is king should always be first place. Mm-hmm. Now, to flesh that out just a little bit, what I would say is, You know, because our government is to be enacting justice, it's absolutely appropriate for Christians to talk about the various ways that our government is not enacting justice, Mm. to be that prophetic critique. But we've got to do that for both sides. And I think this is the way the American system sort of compels us to be polarized. We, at the end of the day, are going to get two options for president in 2024, Mm -hmm. whoever they might be. And we're going to be asked to choose one. It's almost the exact definition of a sucker's choice. <laughs> yeah. And at the, at yeah. the end of the day, neither candidate, whoever is elected, they're not going to be the perfect president. No. They're going to make mistakes. Maybe they're going to be a little shady. Maybe they're going to be a little corrupt. Right? Mm-hmm. And our political loyalties, it doesn't matter who we voted for, our political loyalties cannot and should not keep us from admitting, look, that's an injustice. Our government is supposed to be working for the just. Mm-hmm. That's an injustice. This needs to be fixed. Yes. I think the church is absolutely appropriate in saying those things. Right. Mm-hmm. What's not appropriate to do is to say, uh, no, this is my guy, so he can do nothing wrong. Right. Right. Yes. And we long for justice, and God put that in our hearts. 
uh, you know, and we will live in a, in a, in a world future where righteousness will reign. For now, it does not. And I think people feel they, again, come back to the same theme of trying to fix something that's broken, but it is beyond any realm of ours to be able to fix it, nor are we called to do that. And you say in this article, we would do well to take a lesson from Moody on this point, because the problem of sin is not overcome by human effort. Even when we are successful in restraining evil, our solutions won't result in resurrection. We should seek justice and correct oppression, Isaiah 117, we must do so while proclaiming that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And I love what you say next year. When God's people take up causes, we run the risk of those causes distorting our vision of God and justifying our pursuit of the cause by making the cause an idol and tying God to it. When this happens, we no longer as act as if we believe that God's ways are beyond our ways or his thoughts are beyond our thoughts. God now conforms to us. We determine how the problems we face must be solved. God no longer directs. He becomes a resource rather than a ruler. In other words, we're doing our own will in God's name is my fear. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would go to, you know, just to further that point, I would go to 1 Corinthians, hmm. and particularly 1 Corinthians 9. You know, Paul's dealing with something in the Corinthian community that is that revolves around eating meat sacrificed to idols. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it would be easy for some of the Corinthians to go on the crusade and say, no, God doesn't want us eating meat sacrificed to idols, and their whole identity gets wrapped up in this. And now everything that God is saying to the Corinthian communities revolves around no, God does not want us to eat meat, uh, sacrificed idols. But that's not any way how Paul treats it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Paul right. walks it through and says, you know, idols are nothing. Um, you know, and he gives certain criteria. He says, you know, if you know it's been sacrificed to idols, why would you take part? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. But if you don't know, if you don't ask, if it's not clear, go ahead and eat it because idols are nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and so he sort of maneuvers this in a way that we often are unwilling to. Mm. And so he ends that, or as part of that discourse, he talks about being all things to all people, that by all means he might save some. Mm. And he's particularly talking about the Jew-Gentile dynamic in the early church. But his overall point is, look, I know I have these rights, I know I have these freedoms, but I'm willing to give those up for the kingdom. The kingdom is what matters. It's not my rights, it's not my freedoms, it's not how this ultimately sort of works out for me. Um, I want to give freely from my freedom Hmm. in order to serve the kingdom of God and make sure that everybody who's in the kingdom of God is built up and growing. Because that, at the end of the day, is what he's supposed to do. And that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. Yeah, That's not right. not any righteousness in this world. That that is not on on the list. It's a very distant. <laughs> it's a distant second. <laughs> we we don't have a lot of time left, but I still I want to talk about this uh, article when we no longer understand what the word Christian means. And I really like this because oftentimes you know on social media or whatever, someone will post, "Oh, so and so became a Christian," and immediately my mind says, "Define that, please," because it's <laughs> almost never. What I think it would be, and and if I read it and I'm disappointed, then I lose heart, and and I think it it really confuses a lot of people because of media personalities. But 
You say, what if we no longer understand what the word Christian means? And you say, I've been working with Christian institutions for almost 20 years. Despite their differences, each institution would describe itself as Christian. But this description doesn't provide the clarity one might expect. Rather, I found that some institutional leaders struggle to answer two simple questions. One, how are you a Christian? And two, why does it matter? Boy, you get right to the, right to the, the, the uh, heart of the matter there, too. Um, you know, and you say that leaders often point to, you know, biblical coursework, cur- curriculum, mandatory chapels, requirements for church membership. Um, and the second question is more challenging because as important as specific practices and structures may be, they tend to become minimal standards. In other words, I have checked all the boxes and then we have a sense of security because we are aligned with a certain definition. Um, so my question, James, is if, you know, we have about seven minutes left, um, sure. People have lost control of what it means to be a Christian, and it seems to be um, American exceptional. Uh, ex- uh, okay, I lost the word there. <laughs> ex- exceptionalism, and it's yeah. a, a theolo- It's a nostalgic thing. It's not really theological. What do? How can we make sure that we are all defining this word the same way? Well, I think you know the best place to turn, obviously, is actual scripture. Mm-hmm. And so, Christian is only used three times in scripture: twice in Acts, once in First Peter. And in the, the references in Acts, it seems clear from the context that what Christian was intended to uh, connote, what it really meant, was the mixed multitude of Jews and non-Jews united in Christ. Hmm. That's what it meant. And I think that Christ is central and essential to any definition of Christian. Hmm. And so, you know, it, it may be common for us to say, well, that's a real Christian thing to do. And we're referring to something being nice. Hmm. If being Christian boils down to something being nice, I think that's a problem. Yeah. Because people can be nice without Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that's for sure. Um, at the end of the day, any definition, any way of using Christian that makes Christ unessential, in my mind, is the wrong way to use Christian. We're losing mm-hmm. control of that language. Mm-hmm. We're draining of its of its theological specificity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we think about things like Christian nation, right, mm-hmm. um, my real objection to framing the United States as a Christian nation has very little to do with um, how the Bible may have influenced or how uh, Christian people may have influenced the forming of our nation. Amen. I think there's ample evidence for that. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Like, as a nation, yes, Christians were involved in the forming and very influential. But the reality is, the United States doesn't reference Christ in its founding documents, right? It, you know, it's a pluralist society in which all religions are free. And, and that's not a critique. It's just not Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just not Christian. Mm-hmm. If Christ is not essential, I don't think we should be calling it Christian. Right. And so, you know, references to God are wonderful, but um, they can be sort of vague. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We all have a different understanding of what we mean, God. And so often when I write, I try to write triune God just to clarify. But at the end of the day, that's where I think the heart of this for the church needs to come into play. Yeah. That when things are being described as Christian, that for which Christ are not essential, mm-hmm. we, we've got to stop using that language. Yeah. I think it's as simple as as uh, eliminating something like luck from our cat, uh, from our <laughs> speech. Yeah, right. You know, right. Uh, we don't believe in luck. We believe in providence. Mm-hmm. We believe in blessing. Yeah. And so I'm not lucky. I'm blessed. 
Mm-hmm. Right. 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 I don't have good luck. God has providentially moved this such that I have benefit. Yeah. Luck is just a lazy way of speaking. And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the times when we use Christian, it's just us being lazy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, the idea of American exceptionalism, um, it's not really a Christian idea. It says uh, using Christian in this fashion changes the concept that lies beneath the term Christian. It begins to be more about politics than discipleship, and which reminds me of every 4th of July, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. And I, I have a, let me throw this out at you. The only nation God deals with collectively is Israel. Not America. And and how many Christians does it take to make a Christian nation? And if there are that many Christians in China, is that a Christian nation? To me, it's it's quantitative and qualitative across the board. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that, uh, Chronicles? Because well, it spreads like gangrene. Oh, yeah. And I think in Chronicles, the context for that is actually the establishment of the temple. You know, Solomon's temple was a new structure. It was a new thing that Israel was doing. And so Solomon prays a chapter ahead that God would hear the voice of the people from the temple, that he would actually answer them. So God's response in 2 Corinthians 7.14, um, which is what you quoted there, um, it actually echoes Solomon's prayer from the previous chapter. And so mm-hmm. what God's really saying here is that, yeah, I'm going to listen from the temple. Wow. And when people come here and they repent and they turn and they turn to me, they can turn here and I'll hear it. Wow. And so it's, it's not even so much a national blessing as mm-hmm. it is a response to Solomon's prayer that God would hear people from the temple. Wow. So I think that uh, I would hesitate to say, you know, um, qualitative, quantitative um, sort of uh, criteria could be used to establish us as a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. I don't actually think a majority of Christians in the United States makes it Christian, right. not in the sense that we're really talking about. Right. Right. What I would say is that... Um, all of the special relationships that um, entities can claim to have with God are initiated by God. They are not claimed by the people. Mm, ooh, that's a great point. I don't get to just say, no, no, uh, yeah, I met Jesus, I had this great relationship with Jesus, and I came to Jesus, and it was on my terms. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. time God chooses, he chose Israel, he chose Abraham, he chose us. Mm-hmm. Um, he binds himself to humanity. Mm-hmm. And he does that on his terms, and we conform to those terms. And so I think that that's how we have to look at this. And barring any sort of um, biblical passage that I'm missing about America, right? America would be factored amongst the nations. Yes. And the nations are not all evil. They're not horrible things, right? right? Right. They're just not God's special possession. Right. Right. And he did set, he, he, uh, defined the nations back at Babel. And, and now we are becoming globalists again. Uh, very interesting, you know, when you look very at the, the survey of, of history and how God works. But I love how you, how you ended this, you know, we're wrapping up here. I love how you ended this. This, this is on God's terms. Everything. And God puts in kings and takes out kings and, and it is all on his terms. And that is a huge thing that the church, I think, has kind of veered off on. So, um, James Spencer, thank you so much for a thoughtful discourse on on politics in the church. I really appreciate your perspective. MoodyCenter.org, great website, a lot of wonderful archives about D.L. Moody. And again, the book, 
The book, uh, Useful to God, Eight Lessons from the Life of D.L. Moody. Thank you so much, James. Really appreciate it. Hope we can do it again sometime. Coming up next week, we have a fresh podcast on Monday with Kevin Minsky, Claude Stouffer, Calvary Chapel Pastor on Tuesday, Jay Siegert on Thursday. And I'm going to veer off in a totally different direction and end today with Jude. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Have a great weekend on purpose.